this is the Matt Ricardo's London Varieties podcast and I am Matt Ricardo. Now, as you'll hear on this month's show, we had a great time at the Leicester Square Theatre. Thanks to everyone that came out to see the show and special thanks to those of you that took me out for macaroni and cheese afterwards. Oh my God. We had a great show. David Armand did silly things in his guise as Austrian interpretive dancer Johann Lipovitz. East End Cabaret brought their usual naughty selves to the party and Lisa Lotti closed the show as only she can. But the centrepiece of the night was my interview with Paul Daniels and that's what's going to make up most of this month's podcast. Now, if you're a regular listener or, or a fan of what I do, then I don't need to tell you how important Paul is to me or to the industry that I work in. 15 years at the top of the TV variety tree, with a primetime award-winning show that brought the best circus and variety performers to my front room and influenced the way my life would turn out. He's important. But what tends to get forgotten is what a brilliant cabaret performer he is. And when he stepped on stage in front of a curious crowd, he turned it on and he floored them with more gags and tricks per minute than they could easily handle. Still sharp as attack, and it was a real treat for me to watch that stuff from the wings. Hope you enjoy the show. Well, it's my absolute pleasure to bring on this next act. Um, they have... I, I first uh, met these, uh, these performers about three years ago at a gig in a, in a little basement, one of these little basement gigs we all do, and I, I thought they were rubbish. I, I, I thought, who are these people? I don't like them. They think, they think they're really good. They're not. Turns out they were. Turns out I was just a bitter, nasty man. Because the next time I saw them, I, went, I, I saw them and I went, oh, yeah, no, they're wonderful. <laughs> I do that quite a lot when I meet a new actor. Who are you? Go away. No, my world. Um, they have just returned from a sell-out run at the Adelaide Cabaret Festival, um, all-conquering. And this uh, Saturday... Saturday, this Saturday, they open for a week at the Soho Theatre with their own show, which I believe is called Notoriously Kinky. Notoriously Kinky. Um, I recommend you see them. Those of you that know them will want to see them. If you don't know them, you will soon want to see more of them. Please go absolutely batshit crazy for East End Cabaret! Hello, darlings. Hello, hello. We are East End Cabaret. Allow me first to introduce to you my very own personal freak of nature. Half man, half woman, Victor Victoria. <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank and you. now, darlings, the moment that you have all been waiting for. Allow me to introduce to you myself. The one and only Miss Bernadette Baum! Woo! Yeah! Ah! Bernadette! You're so amazing! We love you so much! Thank you. <laughs> now we are going to get a little bit intimate with you now, darlings. After we've had the very real threat of death or losing thumbs on this stage, we're going to follow it with a bit of music, sure. a bit of comedy, and a little bit of sexual harassment. Oh. Okay. Just watch out, darling. Ah, 
Too sexy for my shirt Too sexy for my shirt So sexy It hurts Too sexy for me Too sexy for me New York and Japan Too sexy for you Too sexy for you, darling. But it's okay, darling. Just embrace the arousal, okay? Just embrace it. Embrace it. Embrace it. Oh, yes. It was good for you. Well, that's good, darling. I'm a model. You know what I mean? That's my little time. On the catwalk. On the catwalk, yes. On the catwalk. I do my little turn on the catwalk. teenager um i had learned to juggle um and it was obviously it was a hobby and i was at the point in my life when i was wondering you know when you're a teenager you, you start to wonder what you'll do with your life what what will be your job what will be the thing you do as a grown-up and obviously i i, I could juggle a bit but that wasn't going to be it clearly it was there's going to there, there's a job there's a career that i will find at some point and on a saturday night we would sit down and i would sit on the rug in front of on the carpet in front of the sofa And we would watch Paul Daniels' magic show. And, and it showed me two things. It showed me, A, that it was one of the few things that my family all watched together. And, B, it showed me that, that this was a job. Um, not only the, the, the work of the host in doing new magic every week for years, but also I got to meet my heroes through that show. That was the first time I met uh, Chris Cremo, um, who, you won't know these people, they are heroes only to other jugglers. But they are heroes to other jugglers. Chris Cremo, who is the greatest guy in the world for doing cigar boxes that I opened the show with. Um, uh, Natalie Untherlin, the most elegant juggler in the world. The great comedy juggler Rob Murray. The amazing, iconic American clown George Carl. These people who influence my work and my life. And I saw them for the first time on the Paul Daniels Magic Show. And every time I saw one, I thought to myself, well, look, there's a guy who's a juggler, for instance. There's somewhere that he can work. So all I've got to do is get good. Because clearly there are places to work. So it is not an exaggeration to say that without this next guest, I would not be doing this. And nor would pretty much anyone of my age who does this for a living. Um... Sometimes in my life, when it's going particularly well or particularly badly, I have a little conversation in my head with the teenage me. 
Yeah, anyone else do that as well? You know, you did that thing where you talked to the teenage you and the, the, the teenage you that was shy and unsure of what would happen, and I kind of in my head go, no, it's going to be okay. And this is one of those moments. Um, I cannot tell you how much happiness it brings me to say the next five words. Ladies and gentlemen, Paul Daniels. Trained for it, good. Okay, knock, knock. Maggie. How soon they forget. Okay, so, um, yeah. if, if, if you find people indulge us, I thought I might sit down and have a little chat with Paul. Yeah. I'm here. You're here. So how long have you been doing that exact routine? Because this is the reason I, I asked you to do that routine. Oh, right. Uh, uh, 22, 52 years. 52 years. <laughs> yeah. Honed. Uh, you could say that, yeah. It yeah. took me 18 months. When I started in show business, I was doing the working men's clubs up in the north. We had zillions of them. And uh, I was doing all the clubs. And I remember I bought it from a great magic dealer called uh, Ken Brooks, the greatest ever of magic dealers. And he um, sold me the routine. I threw half of it away and uh, worked on it. And I was out. The first... Two and a half years of me turning professional, I only had 18 nights off. <laughs> and that's where you learn your trade. Yeah. And I learned, and it was great. And I can, I can remember coming home after 18, 19 months of doing that trick and coming back in the house and going, yeah, tonight it was right. You know, mm. up till then it'd been good, but uh, tonight it was right. You know, it's one yeah. of the things. So I, I found a really nice quote from you as I was researching this. Um, a magic show is a play about a man who can do anything. Hmm. Exactly. That's a beautiful way of putting it. <laughs> Got to be able to do anything, he said, didn't he? Yeah, that's what he said. <laughs> so how did you find magic? How do I work? How did you find magic to start with? Oh, you never know how you find it. Well, I do, I do know, because what happened was I read a magic book when I was 11. I was a very shy kid, and um, never went out. I used to read, 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 read all the time. And uh, I was, I come from a very industrial town called Southbank near Middlesbrough. And it's, um, and this is, people find this weird, but until I was 11, I never actually saw a tree, because there weren't any gardens or parks in my town. It was just built as fodder for the steelworks, the docks, and all that jazz. And so when I was 11, I'd pined for my father, who'd been off in the Navy. They sent me off into the country. They had these big monsters with googly eyes. And they got milk out of them, you know. <laughs> we got milk out of bottles in those days. And so I, uh, I, it was raining, didn't know what to do. Townie in the country, doesn't know what to do. So I read... Um, 
I read this book, and there was a mathematical trick in there. And I still like maths, you know, I've always liked maths. But it's, uh, it's one of them things, I, I just got hooked on it. You don't know why. Were you kissed on the cheek by the goddess Marja? Or were you bitten on the bum by the magic bug? You know, it's just up to you. Happy birthday, Amy. Yeah, Amy, it's her birthday. Happy birthday. It was on Twitter. It was on Twitter, wasn't it? It was on Twitter. Over 50,000 people read about your birthday on Twitter today. It's good, eh? Next question. <laughs> They're wondering, what the hell is... <laughs> so, tell me about the moment you turned... <laughs> <laughs> the moment you turned pro, the, the point at which it became a, a, a job. Well, my first marriage was breaking up. I mean, I'm, I'm a fellow of the Institute of Municipal Treasures and Accountants. Mm -hmm. But I, um, and I, I did that till I was 28. Uh, I was a soldier for a couple of years. And I did that till I was 28. And then I bought a grocery store so that I, as insurance, in case show business didn't work out. But after two years of that, as I say, my marriage was breaking up. Actually, your introduction to me lasted longer than my first marriage. <laughs> and, uh, and so I just, uh, I thought, if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. So I went off and, and I got a job. Um, there was a fabulous hypnotist, the best I ever saw, called Peter Casson. And Peter Casson was my manager for a couple of years. And he had a nightclub in Barnes, Barnsley. <laughs> <laughs> Wave, where are you, Barnsley? Oh, here, here, hey. Two, Barnsley's nearly empty. Okay, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and there used to be a club there called the Barbar Club, you know, and all that jazz. Let me have a look, yeah, yeah. So you're from Barnsley? Yeah, I used to live up Wakefield Road. Wow, I had great times in Barnsley. I could be your father. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I, uh, and yours. And so it was, uh, it was, the Bar Bar Club was in Barnsley. He had another one uh, called the Kiki Club that was in Kirk Sandal. He didn't have a lot of imagination when he was doing it. But he put me into a summer season down in New Quay. The theatre's gone now, but it was on the beach. And I was behind the girl singer going, do wap, be do, be do, be do, wap, be do, doing all that. There was three of us. I was in the comedy sketches, uh, which he did. And again, great training because what happened was uh, you did uh, on the Sunday nights, because of the laws in those days, you weren't allowed to use props. So I just read minds, you know, no props. And then uh, Monday and Tuesday, you did one act. Wednesday and Thursday, a different act. Friday and Saturday, a different act. And then on the Sunday, you did a different act to the previous Sunday. And you did all that again, except the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, that was three more acts. Great. So you were, you, it was great training, great training for television because I kept having to make this stuff up. And one time, Debbie and I, we finished up in um, uh, Spain, did the gig, and... <laughs> and uh, went to the office the next morning and said, what time's the flight out? Oh, no, senor, tonight you do the second show. What second show? And she said, the second show. You know, your manager not tell you? I said, I haven't talked to him for months, you know. And she, she, I said, well, where's the audience coming from? Because La Manga, it was a 
little conclave. But she said, no, it's the same audience. Ooh. And I'd done all the shtick the night before. And so I went, oh. And we walked out, and Debbie said, what are you going to do? I said, we're going shopping. <laughs> <laughs> and because of all that experience and all the reading and all the competitions I entered and all that jazz, I went to their equivalent of Woolworths and the local stationery shop. You buy a couple of newspapers, you can make stuff up. If you really know your game, yeah. It was good fun. So, the move to television, how did that happen? Uh, <laughs> um, I, I'm amused sometimes when I go to a magic convention. Magicians meet, they have conventions, you know. I don't think singers do that, except in Wales. They have the ice state for it, you know. Um, but uh, I have a problem, you know, with Wales. All my ancestors came from Wales, you know. But halfway through, I start sounding like a Pakistani. And I cannot, <laughs> I cannot, I cannot help it. It's the way it is. Uh, so I did a summer season on Jersey with a fabulous after-dinner comic called Michael Benteen, who wrote for The Goons. He was a great guy. But he was a rubbish summer comic. I mean, I mean, people, horses for courses, you know. And he had great stuff, but it just didn't seem to click. He was too, maybe too elegant for a summer audience. He used to walk on stage with a chrome pole, you know. He'd make his entrance with a chrome pole like this. And he'd stand there for a while talking, and then he'd go, Phew! I knew I got off that bus too fast. <laughs> you know. <laughs> It's a killer guy. It's a killer guy. Yeah. Uh, this guy's dead, so I've used it. And it's... Um, <laughs> so, uh, but, he, uh, but he wasn't very good. And he was on... I can tell you, he was on £800 a week then. And I was on uh, £200 a week. And I was going really well. And he was dying on his backside, you know. And I thought, what's the difference? And the difference was, he was on telly with potty time and all that stuff. And I wasn't. So, I came back to England and I asked around and I found a guy who hyped records into the charts. Records in those days. Into the charts, okay? I mean, we all thought it was our decision. We bought the stuff, so that was what drove it to number one. What a load of twaddle that was. It was all these advertising fellas, you, you know. And, and all. So I found him, and he said, I said, I'd like you to hype me onto television. I'll pay you to hype me onto television. And he went to the BBC, he did. He went to the BBC, and in those days, the BBC... It's a good idea, this. Is anybody here in television? It's a good idea. He went out to places like this, he saw good acts, and then he, he would place them into the shows uh, that were on TV at the time. And Howard sat there for three days. And the guy eventually gave in and so on. Howard is now an executive producer on television himself. Uh, most of the major game shows you see come through Howard. And he's um, still a good, good, good friend. Crazy. The most lateral thinking guy I ever met in my life. He really thinks sideways. And so he, um, he got me on TV. And I was on Guernsey. Uh, and I had to be at Batley Variety Club the next night. Batley Variety Club was the club to work. It really was. Vegas-style room, you know, and uh, glorious to work. And so I... Uh, 
missed the plane because of the party the night before. I actually had to charter a plane to get back to England uh, in order to do this job, which sounds like I was rich. I was skint, especially after I chartered the damn plane. But I got there and I drove all the way up to Bathley Variety Club and it wasn't the standard cabaret night. And this poor devil had sat in the audience for four hours. It was a drum convention. <laughs> and the whole of the stage was covered in drum kits, drum kits, drum kits, drum kits, drum kits. And they decided to have a break and put me on in the middle just so this fella could see me, you know. So I came on stage and said to the drummers, don't worry, I'll keep all these plates spinning, you know. And it, it, it was all their symbols, you know, and all that. So it was... Um, so... And he, employed, he couldn't find a place to put me because at that time, magicians would mostly doing this kind of shtick. Uh, I don't do this, so forgive me. You know, where they, they sound... All that stuff, you know. And, and so they, they were doing all that. Well, I wasn't. I mean, I was like, you just saw me. And I... Um, <laughs> not doing it twice. And so it was... Uh, so it was... Uh, they didn't... So he phoned a guy called Johnny Hamp an ITV producer for Granada Television, and they put me on uh, Wheel Tappers and Shunters Club. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Where they built a club in the studios, and it was fabulous. And again, anybody from television, bear this in mind. They put the camera, Johnny put the cameras behind the audience so that instead of working to cameras, you were working like you did in the clubs. And I had watched television carefully, and television executives still haven't got it right. You know, I mean, they still haven't. They think an act is three minutes. It's not three minutes. I mean, come on and sing a song, you know. If I rule the world... Yeah, forget it. Uh, you will not be a star in one hit. You really won't. It's very rare that happens. But if they'd let people see the acts, you know, so Alvin Stardust would come on and sing one song. Big deal, go on. Um, somebody would stand up there for three minutes telling a guy. So what I did was I made my act. I did three tricks in the act. Uh, that was one of them, cupping the ball. And in the first trick, I talked about the two tricks I was going to do. In the middle trick, I talked about the trick I'd done and the one I was going to do. Oh. And in this trick, I talked about those two I'd just done. And when I came off, Johnny Hamp walked up to me and he says, I can't figure out whether you're very clever... Or, or very lucky, because he said, I can't edit that. And I said... <laughs> I was shocked. <laughs> I said, well, well what, what, edit? What does that mean? You know, whereas I'd been brought up in a cinema, and when I went to uh, work on TV, I deliberately set out and read uh, production manuals and books and found out what was what. And so he took the risk and he showed me on Saturday night prime time for 12 minutes. And the next morning, I was a star. Mm. It was as simple as that. I was invited back. I did 15 minutes. And <laughs> I walked off after that. And he came up to me and he says, you're not lucky, are you? Which <laughs> <laughs> is great for me. Yeah, really good. Yeah. So let's talk about the Paul Daniels magic show. Yeah. It ran... For 15 years? 16. 16. Who's counting? <laughs> I, think, I think what's interesting... Let's say 20. Um, 
it, for me, it's... I mean, obviously, it's important to me personally, but it, it started in 1979, finished 1995? 1995, 1996, because they got a guy in to run the BBC called Alan Yento. Mm-hmm. The only... Well, he, he made himself into being a presenter... Which yes. is really weird. Yes. And he's the only man I've ever seen on television who can make Vegas boring. <laughs> he's just extraordinary. And he said on to the press, he said, um, Paul Daniels doesn't like me because I got rid of his programme. And the press, of course, then come to me. And I said, that's just not true. I didn't like him before he got rid of the programme. <laughs> you know, which, is, which is true. Um, I, when television started, you're too young, my dear, to understand this, you know. But when television started, of course, it took people from entertainment. It took people from theatre. Mm-hmm. It took people from cabaret. Uh, people who knew what we all liked. Uh, but now you go to media studies for it, and you are taught by people who have never made a programme or ever walked onto a stage, you know, and the feeling of those... The reason the early shows were really great, and they were, no kidding, the odd one sneaks through now, but in those days, a lot more sneak through. The, uh, the reason was the director, the cameramen and all that, they could feel it. Sound men now don't even go to live shows. That's why they, you get the... Uh, they're watching a needle like that. If the needle hits the red, that's why you get on television. <laughs> Gone. In fact, that fellow over there works for him. The one who says, ha, 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 to laugh. <laughs> but it's so true. You are responsible for the most, the largest number of original tricks performed on television in, in history. I guess so. Um, including, I mean, you vanished a, a million pounds of Robert Maxwell's money literally from under his nose. No, it wasn't his money. It was, was in Barclays Bank. Oh, Barclays Bank. Ma- uh, Robert Maxwell was there because he brought with him a press, uh, a lot of press people. Right. And I actually said on the floor, look, you guys, I did this several times over the years, if you see anything happening on the screen when this show goes out that you didn't see happen here, if you see an edit or anything like that, well, you tell the world because we never, ever did a camera trick. Right, yeah. Not once. And it was, except the one where we vanished the camera, that was... <laughs> yeah, that was different. But it was... Um, that was the reason Maxwell was there, was to count it. And Barclays wouldn't actually lend us the money to begin with. A million pounds. We had bodyguards everywhere in all And uh, the BBC never uses its power. It has power. People don't turn up for what was then Top of the Pops, but they still play the records... I would just tell them to sod off. And, and you'll never get your record played again. You can't mess with us. Uh, so the BBC went begging to Barclays, and I didn't. I said, uh, I want £1 million with Barclays uh, security as well as our own, and if you don't give us that, I'm pulling all my accounts out. <laughs> That's added up to more than they won't lend us. And so it was just... Um, but that was it, so they lent us the money. And it was good, vanishing a million pounds, completely surrounded by guards. And the funny thing was, the letters that I got from the producer said, could I vanish a million pounds? There was no mention of bringing it back. (laughs) There's a film there, because I worked out how to get it out of the studio. Yeah, really good, yeah. (laughs) 
You also did the the, the, the one that I remember is the the, the Halloween <laughs> is the Halloween one where. Well, that was an interesting one. I know what you're talking about yeah. because the um, John Fisher, the producer, came to me. Uh, I think it was was it 1938, 39, when Orson Welles panicked New York uh, because they believed the Martians had landed. Um, it's fairly easy to get Americans excited <laughs> by that sort of thing. Anyway, so uh, John came to me and he said. Um, could I think of something that would have the same effect on the audience? And I said, well, I said, you know, I said, only if it's live, because um, when David Copperfield, uh, when he banished the Statue of Liberty, if that had happened for real, the press would have been full of it the next day, this, that, and the other. So, Sadly for David, a lot of America wrote it off as a camera trick, mm. which it wasn't. It was a clever combination of various principles. Mm. So, I said it can only be live. So he said, OK. And we went to a stately home. We uh, set it up so a ghost would be on film provided by Panasonic on videotape. Uh, Panasonic brought their machine and everything, yet a ghost appeared on it. All spooky stuff. But at the end of the show, I had designed... A um, what do they call it? The big thing with the thing, the Iron, Iron Maiden. Yeah. See, see that? Lips never move. <laughs> Voice from over there, right? Iron Maiden, and from Nuremberg. Uh, but that was body shaped. This was just straight, and it had big spikes like that. A paper door came this way. Huge spikes like that came swinging in, and it was not on a timer. It was worked on weights. So these. Metal balls rattled down. It was very gothic, dear, very gothic, you know. And it was rattling down, rattling around. And when it achieved a certain weight, it pulled the pin and the door would swing shut. In the meantime, I'm lashed up here and I'm tied up here and tied up here. My legs are tied up and I've got to get out. Well, all week long, I had been getting out. <clears throat> I came close one. I, I gashed my leg one day. I left it a bit late getting out. Um, but uh, on the night... I hadn't told anybody I wasn't coming out. I designed an illusion inside an illusion. So you could escape or you could still survive. And it threw the whole thing into... It wouldn't have been as real if I'd told people. Yeah. So, so, the, <laughs> so when it slammed shut... <laughs> um, there was utter silence, and, and it really was real silence. And, and then the director went, oh, and, and flipped, and said, go to black, and it went to black. But they'd left the sound on, so you heard the stage manager saying, um, well, would you all go next, click? Then they cut him off, and there was no music, mm. but credits are rolling over the black instead of all the happy pictures. And the switchboard was blocked for three days, absolutely <laughs> blocked. But ITV was blocked as well, because nobody knows what they're watching when they're watching telly. And it, was just, and it was just great to pull that off and get that kind of reaction, the newspaper headline. Oh, and I ran next door. When, I, when they opened the door up, they moved the audience next door. Uh, there was one woman in that audience. But when I walked through the door, went like that, and I said, I'm really sorry, but it is Halloween. I just wanted to say boo to the nation. And she said, I've got to get a phone. And I said, stop that woman. 
because I knew she was a journalist, and I think I'm the man who made Anne Robinson nasty. <laughs> I also vanished a million pounds. I think I gave Robert Maxwell the idea. You see, I've created history. That's what I am into. I'm the history maker, yeah, yeah. OK, I'm going to throw some names at you of other magicians to get maybe a one-word opinion on them. How's that sound? OK. OK, Penn and Teller. Great. You go and see the Penn and Teller show. You yeah. will have a great night. But ignore the big guy, the little guy. <laughs> he's the genius. Yeah. But he's a genius on all levels. They're both bloody intelligent. But uh, that little and Teller, yeah, and that's his name. He doesn't have his first name or a second name. Uh, he doesn't have a, a first name at all. Just Teller. That's his, he's, that's his official name, yeah. Teller. And he really is. On, on the arts, on cinema, on literature. He's a, he's a great guy. But they're a great act. One of the greatest, yeah. OK, David Blaine. David Blaine. Now, David Blaine is a real mixture for me. Mm. I've never seen him live, and I always wait to see people live. I, I never form opinions now on television because production companies are using all the techniques to bring about the effect. And I think that's wrong. If you can't do it, shouldn't be there um, and I don't like stooges either uh, you know that's pretty easy to stooge anybody up uh, but David Blaine I met him for the first time last year when we were doing a television broadcast to about 72 countries live and I had David on this side and Dynamo on this side which is a bit like putting a pair of stereo glasses on. You know, they, they look alike, don't they? Yeah. And, and David is not the... Look at the hand. <laughs> He's not that. He's a happy guy, loves photography. He, he was interesting, curious about history. He was, you know, he was active. Mm. Not at all like his persona on television. So, um, so I like him. Um, Dynamo, I like Dynamo. Um, great card juggler, yeah. you know. I, um, but I think he suffers a little bit from being honed into only the close-up scene, like mm. so many magicians are. They're honed into this is one era, area of, of magic, the close-up scene. So when they ask him to go out and do other stuff, um, all of them, all the ones I've seen, have to be helped, which is a bit mm. of a shame, really. Yeah. <clears throat> OK, Darren Brown. Darren, mm. uh, Darren, uh, <laughs> I, th I think I like a lot of Darren, what he does, and I love going to see him live, which yeah. you know, I've been to see him live many times. I think live is always better than... T Don't bother watching. Look, are we having a good night? Yes, we're having a good night, you know. Why? Well, because it's not just this big. I mean, OK, I stay the same size, whether I'm on... <laughs> but, you know, but, um, but I think sometimes Darren was a bit badly advised on some of the stuff he did mm. on TV. Yeah. You know, I would like to have seen it gone a different way. But, hey, anybody making a living in this game, good luck to you. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I think you, you, you know more than most about how variety is presented on, on television, how to do it, you mm. know? So what's your opinion on, on the current state of variety on television? Uh, well, the problem has been, over the last lot of years, 
is that the, uh, they put all the impressionists in one show and all the singers in another show and uh, all the magicians in another show. That's what they've done. Um, and they use this thing, this word, which didn't exist when I was coming through, and it's called demographics. We're making this show for the 15 to 20-year-olds. We're making this show for the 18 to 25-year-olds. And I remember being on a show one time, late at night TV show, when, uh, and I kind of, I take the mickey out of anybody. I don't care what colour or creed you are. You're up for it, you know. And I'm sitting, it's one of those late night TV shows where you all sit round a table and you can't see anything behind, because there isn't anything cheap. And, it's, um, and there's, this, there's this big black guy sitting next to me, and as I sat down, he says, the brothers love you. And I... Stan Laurel, hmm, how many brothers have you got? You know. <laughs> and he said, anyway, uh, no, no. And the presenter's kind of backing off away. <laughs> and I said, no, no. Um, I, didn't make, I didn't make shows for coloured people, and black people. And, whew, I said, on the other hand, I didn't make them for Jewish people, Chinese people, Indian people, or even English people. I just made shows. And I tried to make them in such a way that no matter whether you were three-year-old or a 103-year-old, you'd enjoy them. There's no demographic in, in variety. Variety appeals. Look around here. Look at all the ages you've got here, you know. And, and, and that's great. And this is what variety should be, and it should be on TV, appealing right across. Now, has, how do you do it? How do you shoot it? Well... Just because you've got technology, you don't have to use it. Um, I used to fight like hell because they had this big crane come in to the studio over the heads of the audience. When did you fly into a club in a helicopter? You never did. You know? And there was a great, great film director, uh, Billy, and he, he would never shoot anything unless the camera was at eye level. Okay, never. So, because that's where people look, and that took you into the movie. And I think that just because you got, they cut maximum every seven seconds, you know. And you haven't been able to take your eyes off me, you know, have you? Been on here at least ten seconds. And it was, uh, but it's, it's that's it. So for me, don't jump about all over the place. Mm. Let the act entertain, and. Uh, don't try to improve it with bad camera work. That's it. Yeah. Okay, we're coming to the end of our time. Well, when I'm king, you do know it's all going to change. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I expect to be in your court. Okay. <laughs> so you're still still working, still gigging. Yeah, still, still working gigging. as hard as you, we got off a uh, cruise ship just last week in the Azores. Have you ever lost luggage on a plane? Oh yeah. Yeah. While well, working cruise ships. Yeah. yeah. Amateur. We lost the plane. <laughs> and the, uh, yeah. <laughs> This is true, quick, sorry, but we landed in the Azores just a couple of weeks ago, and the um, 10 o'clock in the morning, I go to catch the 2.30 uh, in the afternoon flight. Ticket. I say, this plane, he's already gone. What do you mean he's gone? It's not due till 2.30. Ah, we changed the time. But we have another plane tonight, 10.30. I said, 10.30? Yeah, but it's full. 
So, maybe tomorrow morning, eh? This is the joy of show business, the glamour they promised me. Uh, in the morning, maybe 10.30. I said, what do you mean, maybe? Well, tomorrow we're on strike. <laughs> so they lost the plane, day one. Day two, they did get us home, but they lost the luggage. And so, uh, since then, I've done another cruise. I've done, I went straight off that, uh, went to this fabulous 606 club in Chelsea. You been there? No. Oh, what a club. It's an old speakeasy style, Ooh. you know. And Madeline Bell was on with the band from the uh, Strictly Come Dancing, which is. And then uh, so I had a good night there, but the next night I'm driving up to York, did a speech to the accountants there, and then uh, the next day I did two shows in Bridlington, and then I had to schlep back down here to see you. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm doing a 40-night tour in the autumn. I'm working very hard on a new system for fundraising for all kinds of groups, charities, schools, scout groups, anything. I'm working hard on that at the moment. And, um, and uh, yeah, one day, I suppose, I'll retire if nobody asks me, but in the meantime, as long as they ask me, I'll turn out. And you clearly still love every minute of it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is the place. I, I'm like a fish in the water up here. I, I have no fears. I don't care. <laughs> and it was just, you know, she started pointing it at me now. And the, uh, you know, and the, <laughs> uh, the, but don't worry, Debbie doesn't interfere with my private life. <laughs> don't worry about that. Okay. So that's it. You, you were a good guy, and I'm. I'm, oh, thank you. I'm pleased and proud of you for you know bringing variety in and you're doing it so well thank you very much yeah, it's a great act still to come on you yeah, know don't leave your seats this is not an interval it's a great act still coming on and um and i'm bored now so i'm going Fair enough. <laughs> ladies and gentlemen mr paul daniels And that's the podcast for this week. Hope you enjoyed it. A couple of things before we go, though. If you enjoyed that, then you'd love the live show. There are only three more shows this year, and they're all in the next three months. The next show is on May the 30th and features incredible hip-hop improviser Abandoman, the hilarious Piff the Magic Dragon, the original street dancers, and very special guest veteran variety star Michael Pierce. This all happens at 9.30pm at the Leicester Square Theatre. There's information on how to book tickets at my website and also at the Leicester Square Theatre website. It'd be great to see you there. All the shows are also turned into web TV shows and they look beautiful. You can watch them all for free in glorious high definition by visiting mattricardo.com. And of course, also there's a big archive of podcasts running back for about a year and a half, so get stuck into those if you haven't already. And if you like this stuff, your support means a lot. Please do leave a review on iTunes, share the videos till it hurts, and come to the live shows. Oh, and also, if you'd like to see more of me, I'll be doing previews of my new full-length one-man show, Showman, on June the 22nd as part of the Jackson's Lane Postcards Festival, and on the 11th of July at the Leicester Square Theatre Studio. Details of both those dates are on my website. This podcast is produced by Sounds Wild and hosted by the British Comedy Guide. Thanks, as always, to both of them. Also, thank you to Unum for supporting the season, but mainly to you for listening. Until next month, that was your London Varieties. (laughs) 